الجزيرة بودكاست. If you find it hard to imagine being a surgeon, consider doing the job in the dark. Limited supplies, limited staff, then add the ever-present threat of the takeover of your hospital by armed soldiers. What if they come while I'm operating? What should I do with the patient? That's the reality in Sudan's capital, Khartoum. This is Dr. Ahmed Omar. While you are operating, we hear the clashes. We do not know if this clash is just outside or they are entering. So you are operating, but your mind is not 100% in that operation. It's been weeks of fighting in Sudan, and only a handful of hospitals remain open in Khartoum, a metro area of more than 5 million people. You try your best to focus, to be stressless, but you still have a lot of ideas. But doctors are still going, providing health care during crisis after crisis. And medical staff in the country worry about what's to come. This is the worst scenario I could ever imagine. I, I wouldn't be able to imagine this unless I'm uh, living it in reality. So how close is Sudan's healthcare system to collapse? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So since the beginning of this war, the main problem for us as doctors was to maintain the hospitals working so we can treat any patients and treat all the injured people. Dr. Ahmed is a Sudanese emergency medicine specialist who, along with his colleagues, finds himself stuck between two warring parties in a struggle for power. On one side is Sudan's army, and on the other is a powerful paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. Ever since April 15th, their conflict has thrown everything in Sudan into chaos, including its medical system. Hospitals have been destroyed. People can't access doctors. Ambulances can't move safely. And basic drugs are hard to find. As the fighting enters its second month, the rapid support forces have been turning for cover in civilian areas. The rapid support forces, when they lost their operation centers due to the war with the army, they tried to find a place and the facility to treat their injured they started to use the hospitals. Hospitals, like the ones where Dr. Ahmed has been working. They started with uh, East Nile Hospital. We call it Shergani Hospital. And now it's their main operation centers for military uh, operations. They literally, they come attack the hospital. They attack the doctors over there, the patients, and they kick everyone out. We thought that will be just maybe that hospital and that's it. But they made it like a habit. Dr. Ahmed has been there as armed men storm the facilities, he says. They shout on you. All of us, we need to like flex our knees to our chest and stay on the ground. They put us in, in, a, in a kind of a corner. So they put all the doctors, all those with white coats like nurses and so on. They kick number of patients who were on mechanical ventilator. Some of the patients, they cannot even walk, so they try to walk by very slowly. They start to hit them, go, 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 and they start to shout on them and hit them, and so on. After that, we try to evacuate the patient, relocate them. We don't have a kind of big connection database and so on. So we just make calls to our colleagues in the neighboring hospitals if we can 
find the space for that patient. Some of them have cars or try to find a taxi or find someone just to volunteer and pick them and take them over there. And some of them, they say, okay, th this is something out of our ability. We will just take our patient, our mother or our father to the house. If God wants him to leave, he will leave. If God doesn't want him to leave, he will die. Now there is nothing more than this that we can do. I think what we've seen from very early on in the conflict is that it's not just a conflict between two very militarized actors within Sudan, but it's also a conflict that they're both waging separately against civilians. That's Matt Nashid, a journalist covering the Middle East and North Africa. He says the impact of that strategy is devastating the health sector on two levels. The first level, of course, is the arbitrary and discriminate attacks that we're seeing on both sides, but I think particularly from the aerial attack from the army. Al Jazeera correspondent Hiba Morgan has reported on that too. There have been many hospitals, dozens of hospitals that have been destroyed by shellings and some hospitals that have been raided as per doctors and being used as bases for operations by armed groups. So the situation, the medical situation is quite dire. We're seeing a targeted attack in terms of facilities from the rapid support forces. They have made it a strategy of their war, a tactic of war, in order to turn civilian facilities, such as primarily, I would say, medical facilities, into military outposts. The complete disregard for the rules of war has effectively destroyed the health sector nearly in its entirety. In one case, when the RSF did take over a hospital, the military elected to bomb it into pieces. And of course, people would say, well, that's a legitimate military target. Well, it may be according to the laws of war, but just the same, it also levels almost in its entirety, or at least strikes another major blow to an already crumbling health sector that's really just on the verge of absolute collapse. Two doctors' organizations say that in Khartoum, both sides have had hospitals in the fighting, at least half a dozen, though both sides deny it. Matt reached out to both the army and the RSF for a response. The army spokesperson eventually got back to me and he denied outright that this was happening. He was very abrupt and short with me. Uh, so he, he said these questions are confusing and yes, we deny that we would do anything of this sort. I'm paraphrasing, of course, this is not word for word, but unfortunately I can't elaborate because he didn't really elaborate more to me on that. I just got a radio silence afterwards. Matt says the RSF didn't get back to him. But in terms of their reported takeover of the hospitals... There has been a narrative that I think the RSF has rallied behind that may have come from them or from their sympathizers, that it's not actually the RSF that has taken over these hospitals, but in fact, it's people that have put on their uniforms and in an attempt to smear the RSF, have taken over these hospitals. I would warn and advise against putting any credibility to such theories. Matt says the theories remind him of what the RSF said back in 2019, after a massacre at a sit-in during protests demanding an end to military rule. The death toll in Sudan has risen to more than 100 following a deadly military raid on a non-violent sit-in in Khartoum. The RSF was heavily implicated, though there was other security units involved as well, and most likely 
coordinated by the army. The explanation they gave afterwards, the RSF, is that no, it was not them, but in fact, it was other people, shadowy forces that wore our uniforms and went to kill civilians. So what we're seeing is the RSF utilizing propaganda from an old playbook that they continue to recycle whenever it seems abundantly clear that they're committing human rights abuses and violating the laws of war. It's that past that prepared Sudanese civilians to organize during this conflict, including a replacement medical system. Civilian pro-democracy groups have shaped Sudan's recent political history, first during the popular uprising that led to the ouster of longtime leader Omar al-Bashir, Tens of thousands of men and women demanding freedom. And then during the 2021 coup that brought the military into power. More protests have been taking place in Sudan after its military seized power in a coup. The resistance committees were the driving engine of anti-coup pro-democracy demonstrations following the coup d'etat that happened October 2021. Those resistance committees held sustained protests in the months following the coup. And this April, when this round of fighting broke out, they were organized and ready to provide treatment to people in Sudan who need it. What we're seeing is actually a decentralized movement that is utilizing the same grassroots mechanisms that they had cultivated and relied upon to maintain, sustain a pro-democracy movement, now used to provide provisions and hospital care and evacuations for people that are affected in this war. Another part of this movement is the medical staff themselves. Many of them were active participants in the 2019 ouster of Bashir. In 2019, the pharmacist union and the doctor's union were probably the most prominent components of the Sunni's Professionals Association, which made headlines of pro-democracy demonstrations at the time. Many of these people now decided instead of fleeing the country that they would stick around in order to try to rescue civilians and power hospitals in the middle of a conflict zone. But the very act of organizing medical care is life-threatening. We're seeing a targeted campaign against doctors that is part of a broader campaign against anyone that wants to remain neutral in this conflict. Matt says a lot of these threats are coming from army supporters who support Sudan's former leader, Omar al-Bashir. A lot of these people have come out of the fold again, emboldened and supporting the army. But they're also looking to settle scores, it appears, against people that they blame for sidelining them from power. And with the role that doctors played in 019 and the role that they're playing now, their insistence on maintaining neutrality their prime target for counter-revolutionary personalities to try and target and harm them accordingly. Matt says it's no surprise that both sides are targeting doctors. People rely on them, and this is why being neutral is actually a political statement as well. Relying on them for service provisions is a political choice that doesn't force these people to have to then choose a side in this conflict, whether that's the RSF or that's the military accordingly. And this is incredibly threatening to both sides. But for Dr. Ahmed, neutrality isn't a political choice. It's just basic medical ethics. Everyone wants you on his side. Then the doctor doesn't want to be in any side. We are 
open to treat any patients. If he's an RSF injured patient, or if he's a military injured patient, or if he is just a normal citizen. But some of the parties doesn't understand this. They just want you to be in their side, either to choose this patient or this patient. We cannot do that. Even if you hate doctors, we still treat you like we don't care. So between the targeted harassment and the war zone conditions across Khartoum, Dr. Ahmed says a lot of doctors are among the Sudanese people who fled the country, now at over one million. Now we have like very severe deficiency of doctors. Very few doctors are working right now, are working in circumstances where there is no salary, there is no even like a budget for them to leave the normal day for food for stock. So the one is just like a social responsibility. Everyone is trying to help the other. That's it. And the doctor that have money today will bring food for the others and so on. So what's it like to actually conduct a surgery under these circumstances? That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast this week, the re-election of President Erdogan. What does it mean for Turkey at home and abroad? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're hearing from Dr. Ahmed Omar, an emergency medicine specialist in Khartoum. He's no longer working in hospitals with 24-hour electricity. Most of the hospitals have generators with enough supplies of gas and stuff uh, and fuel. But now there is no schedule, no one will tell you anything. And the other thing, we do not have fuel to operate the generators. And not all of the hospitals have generators. When the electricity goes out and you are working, just everyone who's there, even if there is a cleaner or if there is uh, another worker, they just come and bring their phones. We try to collect the much number of phones that we can have and put them on the flash mode. So one of my colleagues, she was working, uh, operating in a cesarean section. And during the cesarean section, she just had a nurse to assist her. The electricity went out in a closed room. So they were using just literally the flash of their phones to operate. You really can't see everything like in detail, especially if there is a kind of bleeding or something. Usually, if there is a light, it's not easy to see the gate. So if there is a bleeding and there is no light, that will be like a hell for any doctor. But it's the experience and talent of Sudan's doctors, the ones that are left, keeping the entire healthcare system afloat. Sudan like, is one of the countries that exporting doctors to the area, especially Gulf countries, during even Corona you can find that Sudanese doctors were like in the first uh, uh, defense line uh, in UK and some European countries. So we have very good Sudanese doctors over here and also the experience because when I tell you that I have 10 to 11 years experience working as a doctor, don't imagine it's like working as a doctor in Europe or in USA and so on. They don't have the full facility even in normal situations. So working in such conditions will make you adapt this makes you able to, to deal somehow and adapt to such a situation of crisis like war and uh, military conflicts. But as supplies dwindle and healthcare facilities are targeted, it doesn't matter how qualified the doctors might be. Dr. Ahmed says the collapse happened a long time ago. 
collapse is, is a very nice word. No, it, it collapsed since the, the first week of this. Now, like almost 80% of the main multi-specialty hospitals are out of stock. According to the UN, fighting in the Sudanese capital has left only 16% of hospitals fully functional. Also, the rain season will start very soon. And when it starts, it's very well known that Khartoum usually flood. And if it's flood, that will be the end of everything. Sudan has seen a great deal of upheaval over the last few years. Dr. Ahmed says nothing has been quite this bad. For example, in the revolution in 2018, you're in the hospital, you find like 12 doctors uh, instead of like 40 or 60 doctors. But now, like, no, only three. So this is the situation now that never in my lifetime, um, almost 35, never seen this. I have been graduated since 2011 never seen something like that. And he's still here. In the past, he turned down offers abroad out of hope for Sudan's democracy. Now, he can't imagine fleeing anytime soon. I'm not thinking of going out. I have my family here. Like, I need to be the last one to go out. If all my family went out, then I can go out. If not, I cannot leave my father, my mother, my sisters, my brother, and so on. The one who is taking care of the family should be the last one to evacuate. And to be honest, like I'm not thinking of that. It's not humane to, to leave people. I understand all the doctors who have evacuated. That's completely their right. And that's completely relative from doctor to another doctor because you don't know the conditions of each one. So uh, I don't know, like there is no enough time nowadays for us to think. <laughs> I, maybe if I have some time, maybe I will think to evacuate or escape, but I don't think I'll do that. But I hope I hope not to, to need that. I hope some kind of political uh, resolution will happen for this and we just have safety. All we need now is just safety. And that's The Take. We'll be back on Wednesday. This episode was produced by Nikin Oliai and David Engers with Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, Khalid Sultan, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Mahotra, Sonia Bagat, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.